2: If you're a right-wing politician who's part of an anti-Semitic authoritarian government that attacks immigrants and refugees and minorities, shuts down newspapers and universities, undermines the rights of women, and attacks gay people, you don't want to go to a massive gay orgy. Particularly if you're the guy who's bragged about writing anti-gay bigotry into your nation's constitution, you do not want to go to a massive gay orgy. Well, actually, that's not right. Of course you want to go to a massive gay orgy if you're that guy. If you're the guy who bragged about writing anti-gay bigotry into your nation's constitution, there is probably no place on earth you would rather be than a massive gay orgy. What you don't want to do if you're that guy is get caught at a massive gay orgy. And Joseph Sager, that cocksucker got caught. Sager is or was a Hungarian member of the European Parliament. He is or was a member of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's political party. Orban campaigned for power, attacking immigrants and minorities. And once he got power, he ended the independent judiciary and shut down the free press and universities and continues still to this day to attack and demonize LGBT people. And Joseph Sager, politician, part of Orban's political movement, that guy got caught at a gay orgy in Brussels after helping draft Hungary's quote-unquote pro-family, actually anti-gay constitution. Sajer probably would have gotten away with attending that massive gay orgy. He has doubtless gotten away with attending massive gay orgies in the past. But gatherings of more than four people are currently banned in Belgium to prevent the spread of coronavirus, which is why the police raided this gay orgy. And it was the police showing up that prompted Sajer to pull up his pants and grab his backpack and jump out a window the police arrested him on the rooftops of Brussels with come on his breath and drugs in his backpack. Saja resigned from the European Parliament and apologized to his wife and his voters for the quote-unquote misstep. Let he who is without sin, let he who hasn't misstepped his way into a drug-fueled 25-man gay orgy in the middle of a pandemic, throw the first stone. Oh, hey, and if there are any Hungarian drag queens listening to this show, misstep, would make a really great drag name. There is no way to quantify just how much of the gay bashing that goes on in this world, in politics and families and churches and mosques and temples, is committed by self hating closet cases. But we can safely say it's a lot. Because this Sajer piece of shit, he's not the first anti gay politician to get caught with a dick in his mouth, and he won't be the last. Guys like Sajer attack other gay people to distract straight people from any tells that they might be gay. But these guys, they can never resist the biggest tells of them all. They can't resist climbing on that dick. They can't resist sucking off that rent boy. They can't resist attending that 25-man gay gangbang even during a pandemic. Needless to say, I fucking hate these guys for the harm they do and not just to gay people. But these self-hating cocksuckers really do put the rest of us cocksuckers in a weird position. Because this happens so often, anti-gay closet cases, getting caught in gay sex scandals, that happens so often that it's really tempting to accuse all anti-gay bigots of being fucked up closet cases. And that's awkward. It feels wrong. I mean, to accuse someone of being gay is to buy into the idea that gayness is something shameful, something a person can stand accused of. But man, it is tempting. And it may even be effective. Because the last thing an anti-gay bigot wants, whether he's gay or not, is for people to think that he's gay. And as we've seen again and again and again, there is something kind of gay about being anti-gay. All these motherfuckers, all these Ted Haggards, all these Larry Craigs, all these George reekers Google them. These guys, they really do put the homo in homophobia. But to be fair, not all anti-gay bigots are gay. They're not all externalizing their internal conflicts. Some of them are straight. But if we accused people who made homophobic jokes or passed homophobic legislation or worked for anti-gay political movements, if we accused them of being gay, if we pointed out that they might be gay, well, then maybe gay or straight anti-gay bigots would be less likely to do or say anti-gay things in public or in parliaments because that would be so gay. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at SavageLovecast.com, astrophysicist and author Katie Mack joins us to help put our problems in the universal perspective. All that coming up on today's show.
3: Hi, Dan. I was calling today with a sex success story. I met my partner a few months back early in the pandemic. Both of us are cisgendered, pansexual in a poly relationship. We met online and had several video dates. Those led to a walking date that lasted for a couple hours. We had hit it off. I wasn't sure of his COVID precautions, so I refused to hug him at the end of the date. But after another video date or two and me being comfortable, I invited him over to my apartment one Saturday afternoon. I gave him a time window and left keys outside so he could let himself in. When he walked in, I called from my bedroom where he found me naked in bed with my toys laying out. He only had a slight idea of what to expect. I had the window open and the ceiling fan blowing. I instructed him to sit in a chair across the room. On my dresser next to him, there was lube, a towel, and an erotic fiction book filled with stories of daddy encounters. I told him to sit down and start reading. I began stroking my body and getting myself more and more aroused. As he struggled through the story, I used my fingers and my toys to orgasm. He tried so hard to keep his eyes on the pages. As the encounter went on and he finished reading, I told him he was welcome to take his pants off and stroke himself. He pulled his pants down to reveal a rock-hard cock. I told him if he would like to undress fully, I would be okay with that. He took his shirt off and left his pants around his ankles. When he sat back down, he played with his balls, stroked his cock, and kept eye contact with me through two more of my orgasms. In the heat of the moment, I gave him instruction to stand up and stick his hard dick in my mouth. He stood up, walked over, and did as I told him. It wasn't very long before he came hard down my throat. As we were wrapping up, his wife texts, so he had to go. We kissed our first and only kiss during the encounter. He dressed and left. I never did hug him. But it was a bit before we met in person again, and now we're in love and totally committed. I think the fact that we fucked before we kissed and long before we even hugged has allowed our relationship to be a beautiful and intimate one.
2: Thank you for calling in and sharing your sex success story. We like to start each week's show with somebody's upbeat, positive sex success story, quarantine sex success, or just plain old regular sex success story. If you have one you want to share, 206-302-2064, give us a call and share it. We might start next week's show with your sex success story.
4: Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman living in the Midwest, and I've got more of a friendship question. My best friend is 28. She's a single woman, uh, has a good job, owns her own home, um, really has her shit together. She's kind of an introvert, so even though she enjoys being around people and she's really friendly and everyone likes her, she does need that solo time to kind of rest and recharge. Um, we're, we share a quarantine kind of Circle, so we see each other about once a week, and we were hanging out the other night. And she expressed to me that she's feeling kind of lonely, and the increased like solo time has got her feeling isolated. And she's having thoughts of like wanting to meet someone and wishing she had someone to share this experience in her life with. And I asked, you know, if not app dating, which she's not interested in doing, how would you meet someone? And she said, I guess through friends. And you know, this conversation was all had knowing that. The pandemic complicates dating quite a bit. And so when I got home that night, I was just chatting with my boyfriend about how the evening had gone and without obviously betraying any of my friend's secrets, told him that she's feeling this way. And he suggested setting her up with one of his friends. Um, This friend is a single guy. He's pretty nice, travels for work. So she'd have alone time and we think they'd be compatible. And so my question is, do you think it's wise to set friends up like this? I've never played matchmaker before, I guess. And obviously it would have to be right now a little more calculated than maybe just, you know, casually going out at a bar because, you know, there's a global pandemic, but is this even a good idea? I don't know if it's a good idea. And if we decide that it is, would you tell your friend that you're trying to set them up with someone? My boyfriend doesn't think that we should tell my friend that we're setting her up or his friend for that matter. But I don't necessarily know if springing it on my friend is a good idea. You know, n- nothing's going to happen anytime soon because we have to stay away from each other. But just as something that we're thinking about.
2: You shouldn't tell your friend you're trying to set them up on a date once setting friends up on dates is possible again, but you don't need to tell this particular friend that that's what you're doing. This friend already asked you to do that. So this friend is probably going to assume and rightly so that if you invite them over and one or two other people for a game night, that there might be somebody there that you thought they might want to meet. And you can just let your friend take it from there and let your boyfriend's friend take it from there. If they spark, if they are both attracted to each other as objects, that visual attraction component is there and if you set something up where the friends you are setting up that forces them to converse a little bit and to interact a little bit but the focus is on something else like the playing of a game, that's a really good and effective way to set two people up. So you ask me what I would do. That's what I would do. I wouldn't tell them I'm setting you up on a date because they would probably assume that might be what's happening and I would put them in a room with each other where there was something else that was the focus. They weren't just sitting in a room staring at each other being forced to talk across a table that they were involved in some project together like playing a complicated, fun, board or card game. That's how you set up friends. But you are right. You can't set up friends like that right now. There's a global pandemic on. and We can't meet face-to-face. So you might want to encourage your friend because it's going to be months and months and months and months and months before a vaccine comes online. You might want to encourage your friend to revisit our opposition to online dating. A lot of people who weren't online dating before are online dating now because online dating's pretty much the only responsible option – At this moment, for single people who would like to do some dating, even if at the moment it has to be virtual. The vast and overwhelming majority of same-sex couples out there prior to the onset of the global pandemic that's on met online and the plurality of opposite-sex couples, most opposite-sex couples met via online dating. I think after the pandemic, those numbers are going to obviously be even higher. So your friend might want to revisit her opposition and you could offer some assistance. If she's never done any online dating, you could help her set up a profile, help her pick out some pictures, help her answer the questions, and then help her vet some of the responses. That's another way that you could set your friend up
1: right now. Hey, Dan, I'm a 30-year-old cis gay man and I have a question for you regarding humor, political correctness, and trauma. I have a group of friends that text frequently in a group chat. The conversation in the chat is often crude, sexual, and full of jokes. Some of the jokes are immature and harmless, but many I find to be borderline or outright offensive. Up until recently, I've regrettably held my tongue. The other day, one of the girls in the chat made a rape joke, and I piped up to say that I didn't think joking about rape was funny. The response I got from her was, well, let's put it to a vote to see if the chat finds it funny. Having had enough, I declared that I didn't find it funny and that I was leaving the group chat. I'm currently dating a 40-year-old cis gay man, and we've been together for about a year. He was also in the chat, and I'd voiced him on previous occasions that rape jokes make me uncomfortable, and I think that they're tasteless and offensive. He was not at his phone at the time of the exchange, but also did not bother to reach out to me when he saw it later to question why I left the group chat so suddenly or see if I was okay. When I mentioned this to him, he did not seem to see why it was a big deal. So I decided to disclose to him my experience of being molested and raped as a child. While he was definitely sympathetic to my trauma, he also defended our friend who made the joke and argued that she was a nice person and a good friend to me, and that her intent wasn't to trigger or hurt me, and that she would not make that joke in public. He's known her much longer than I have. However, in my experience with her, she often tells off-color and politically incorrect jokes. He suggested that perhaps I talk with her and explain why I found the rape joke to be so offensive, but I don't think I should have to lay out my trauma for her or that it's my responsibility to educate her as to why sexual assault jokes aren't funny. It's 2020, and I feel like people should know that their words matter, and joking about sexual assault can be jarring to people. He asked, well, where is the line about what you can and can't joke about? The joke about clubbing a baby seal could be offensive to a vegan. Our conversation did not really go anywhere, and while he seemed to somewhat understand why I was upset, he also said that people in general need to have a little bit thicker skin and, he, and be aware of intent. We dropped the topic, but I did not necessarily feel supported by my boyfriend in the moment, and he still engages in the group chat and is of the mindset that he and I just have different outlooks on humor. I still interact with these people, however, not in my group chat, but I'm trying to decide where to go from here. Am I a hypocrite if I pretend like nothing happened and move on? I've definitely taken a step back from my friendship with the girl who made the joke. Should I continue to engage with my boyfriend on this topic? What should I do, Dan?
2: I'm not sure quite how to say what it is that I want to say, because I don't want you to think, caller, that I am being flip or in any way not taking your point or your trauma seriously. And I'm very sorry to hear that you were molested and raped, assaulted as a child. That's terrible. But I can't help but wonder what that rape joke this woman told in that group chat was because I think rape is something that can be joked about. It depends on what the butt of the joke is, what the target of the joke is. John Mulaney is a comedian that I love, slightly problematic, but I love him. He's really funny. He has this bit he does about walking in a New York City subway down a long hallway and the woman in front of him picked up the pace and so he thought that she could hear the train coming and so he picked up the pace and it was 2 o'clock in the morning and they were the only two people in this long hallway. And then she started to run and he started to run thinking the train was coming and At that moment, he realized that she thought he was following her and about to attack her. And it's an extended – rape joke, basically, but it is the circumstance and and the tragedy of the circumstance that is being highlighted. And the butt of the joke really is John Mulaney and his obliviousness as a man in that moment to what the woman that he's walking down a hallway with or a subway tunnel with in the middle of the night, what her perceptions might be. And it's an extended rape joke that draws attention to male obliviousness. And the fear that women live with day in, day out in a rape culture. And I think that a man who sits in an audience and listens to John Mulaney's extended rape joke may, after laughing his ass off because it's a very funny bet, be a little less oblivious the next time he is walking behind a woman on a sidewalk in the middle of the night when no one else is around or in a subway tunnel or anywhere else. He may, by dint of hearing this rape joke that John Mulaney told – be more sensitive and less oblivious to what the woman in front of him or the woman on the street with him may be experiencing. So I do think a rape joke can be told. I don't know if the rape joke that this woman told in this group chat that you say is often very offensive and unpc pc was that kind of joke where women and rape victims weren't the butt of the joke, but perhaps women and rape victims, by the dint of this joke having been told, may be, in fact safer in the future, that this joke and the wisdom that is sometimes relayed in a joke or the wisdom that's certainly relayed in John Mulaney's long-extended rape joke may make the world a better place for victims of sexual trauma, victims of rape. So I don't want to say that it's never okay to make a rape joke because sometimes it is okay, and sometimes we all benefit from a certain particular kind of rape joke being told. Now, caller, if you didn't get the kind of support you wanted from your boyfriend, you should tell him that. You should tell him the kind of support that you expected from him in that moment and explain why you were disappointed. But I don't think that you should police who your boyfriend remains friendly with. And it sounds like this group chat wasn't to your taste ever. You say that there were other things that people said – in this place where people are kind of shit posting, kind of shit talking, kind of trying to say offensive things uh, that you were offended by, and you, maybe you needed to piece out of that chat a long time ago. And now you're out of that chat. You don't have to think about it. If it would make you feel better to say something to this woman, you can. You don't have to rehearse your story for her, you don't have to share it with her. You can just tell her that it was offensive, maybe unpack for her why, if unlike John Mullaney's. Long rape joke. If the butt of her joke was the victim, maybe you could point that out to her. And maybe you would feel better for having pointed that out to her. And then you do not need to rehearse your trauma for her. But I think the lesson for you going forward is if you're offended by the things that people are saying in that space, that group chat or that comedy club, get the fuck out. Leave. Leave before you're so offended that you don't have a choice but to leave. Choose to leave before you get to that point.
5: Hey, Dan. I'm a single 46-year-old cis female who likes men and, well, dogs. I've been listening to you for about a year, so I've heard many surprising, at least to me, sexual situations. So I'm not sure why I'm feeling extremely embarrassed, shameful, and vulgar about sharing this. But I finally got the nerve in hopes that you can help me understand me in this way a little better. So, I am currently masturbating exclusively alone. Sometimes I hook up virtually with a hottie and masturbate mutually. During masturbating, like many, I have to have the right scenario in my mind to get off. I have many fetishes that my alter ego shames me for. I'm sure a lot to do with how I was raised. But the one thing I really question myself as to why is every time I masturbate, especially at the point of coming, I have to imagine a scenario of a dog fucking me and coming inside or somewhere on me. I really have no idea how this place started in my head. I've never watched or experienced bestiality in reality, but it's a guarantee. I have to think me and a dog, and bam, I come. I mean, I am a highly sexual, kinky female and thoughts of fucking all kinds of men turn me on throughout the day, but the dog gets me in the end. When I try to psychoanalyze myself to why I do this, thoughts come like when I was a child, I remember watching Nature on PBS and seeing all kinds of animals humping. And those were really impactful on me when I was like eight. On the other spectrum, I've had very traumatic relationships with men. Anyways, I'm so curious and ashamed. Why does it have to be a dog and not some, say, mythical beast instead? Or just a guy, which I actually would love it to be, exclamation point. I know you've said something like fantasies in your head are safe, but still would like to get your take on why I can't orgasm without this scenario. Am I really messed up?
2: A few months ago, I mentioned uh, on this podcast, a friend who fantasizes about and gets off fantasizing about being castrated. And this resulted in some friends, other friends, trying to guess which of our mutual friends was the friend that I mentioned who fantasizes about wanting to be castrated. So I'd like to make it clear that this person I referred to as a friend who wants to be castrated is somebody I met through the column, somebody who wrote me a note and I wrote them back and we got into an exchange and we swapped phone numbers and we texted for a bit. Um, And they're one of those weird online relationships, weird sort of virtual relationships that new technologies have made it possible for us to form and so that is the friend I was referring to. It's not actually anybody in my social circle – Everybody else in my social circle, please take note. It is a friend out there on the ether, in the world, someone whose existence I verified. I'm not talking to somebody who's just having a wank leading me on and I was really fascinated about that. And one of the questions that he and I have sort of discussed via text is why that? What was it that resulted – You know, what, what early childhood experience? What did he imprint on that made this the thing? That he has – since he started masturbating at age 12 or 13, he's had to think about in order to come. That he's thought about practically with every orgasm that he's ever had. And there are so many different possible explanations. Sex shame. You know, he's also gay. Maybe he just feels sex shamed He doesn't have a right to be sexual and that there should be some intervention. That prevents him from being fully sexual. Maybe he internalized messages that as a gay boy, that as an effeminate gay boy, he was not a man, not entitled to identify as a man, not deserving of having those testicles that were endowing him with the secondary sex characteristics of the man that he wasn't. There's just so many ways that you could pick it apart, so many places that you could pin the development of this particular kink and fetish on. And in some cases, I think that that's ultimately a fool's errand because you can never know. You can never, I think, determine beyond a reasonable doubt what it was, what some individual's erotic imagination seized on that made X, whatever X might be, the place their mind has to go or the place their mind does go every time that they're getting close to climaxing. We are infinitely complicated monkeys. And I think we should marvel at it and appreciate it and recognize in somebody else's crazy erotic obsession, so long as no one is being harmed or no animals are being harmed in the process of them getting their orgasms, getting off, that this is something that we all kind of have in common. Everybody's got their weird erotic ticks. All right, your weird erotic tick is less tick, more dog not about being castrated, about being bred by a dog. Why does your head go there? I don't know. Your theory is as good as mine. It could be that it was those shows that you watched as a child, those nature shows, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, where you saw a lot of animals humping and you saw sex as something animalistic and perhaps – some part of your brain, some part of your erotic imagination seized on that and that you would feel most free doing this animalistic thing, most able to climax, get yourself to that point of sort of going over the falls and release if you were doing this animalistic thing with an animal and with that particular animal. What do you do about it? Well, I think sometimes you can refocus a kink. I don't think you can eradicate a kink but I think you can refocus a kink sometimes if you drill down on what it is about that kink, what it symbolizes, what its deeper meanings are, what might be at the ultimate root of that kink, recognizing that even if you can identify the ultimate root of a kink, you can never root it out. Is it something about the power of of an animal, the way an animal that is taking pleasure is so focused on that pleasure and not distracted by other thoughts. I, I don't know. Again, I can only speculate. You may be able to tease out what the deeper meanings are here, the themes of your kink, and then shift your kink, shift your thoughts, maybe the help of a cognitive behavioral therapist, in a way that goobs you out less. But if this is just a place your head goes, a place you go privately, not something you're ever actually going to do, how much time and energy do you want to spend trying to root this out at your age? Maybe this is just something that you need to privately, secretly embrace and accept. This is the little tickle your erotic imagination has to provide you with in addition to whatever stimulation you're getting from your partner or your vibrator in the moment to take you fully there. There are some people who can't come. Some people who can't ever get fully there. Some people who can't climax, who would kill to have – This secret weapon in their erotic imagination that guaranteed them a climax, guaranteed that they would be able to get off. So maybe you could see this as a net positive even if it is something that you can never fully understand and may not ever want to share with a partner. But if you really do want to root it out, if you really do want to replace this with something else, something more socially acceptable so you can share your sex secrets at dinner parties – Maybe werewolves. Nobody seems to have a problem with people who are fantasizing about getting it on with shapeshifters or werewolves or vampires. If, if it was an erotic horror trope that turned you on, people might not have as much of a problem with it or be as goobed out by it. If they knew about it, people – but people, you know, they don't have to know about it. But if you really do want to root it out, again, talking with a cognitive behavioral therapist about changing a thought pattern, it works erotic thought patterns seem to be more deeply wired and really wired into subconscious parts of our brain, reptile parts of our brain that we can't consciously control. I don't know if cognitive behavioral therapy would be as effective with a kink. I think, you know, now that I think about it for another minute, if it did work very well with kinks, we would hear about people with kinks that bothered them seeking out cognitive behavioral therapists to tweak and adjust them. But not eradicate. Again, that's my point. You're never going to eradicate this, but maybe if with the help of a CBT therapist, you can get to a deeper understanding of its meaning. Other places your brain might go at this moment could reveal themselves to you.
0: Hi, Dan. So I was listening to a podcast last night and it was one of these podcasts that people call in and tell their secrets. And as I'm listening, I hear one of my oldest friends, and she's sharing how she was molested as a little girl, and I am in a dilemma whether or not to reach out to her or not. I'm thinking obviously she sent she like told the secret on a podcast because she needed to let it out and has never told me this. but I know it's her. I'm like 99.9 percent sure that that's her voice, and even the storyline, like she mentioned something about her family that. Uh, very clearly it's her. And I don't know what to do. Do I like, I want to support her. So I don't know if I like let her know that I know that this happened and that I heard this thing, or do I just honor her privacy and not say anything? I, I don't know what to do.
2: You say this is one of your oldest friends, but then you say you're wondering whether you should reach out to her or not. That leads me to believe that even if she is chronologically one of your oldest friends, she's not currently one of your closest friends, nor are you one of her closest friends. I assume what you mean by reach out to her now is that you haven't reached out to her in a while and may not have been in contact with her for a while. So you may not be the right person or the right friend to come out of the woodwork after however much time to to ask her about this. Or you could be the perfect friend because you may be that person who's at a bit of a distance and a bit of a remove. And in the same way the listeners of that podcast were at a distance and a remove and that made her feel more comfortable sharing this secret about herself, you may be the perfect person for her to open up about this trauma or continue to open up about this trauma. So it's a real dilemma because, you know, the premise of this platform is the anonymity. It's a secret being shared. Her name isn't attached to it. It may upset her for her to realize and this is something that I hope she realized in advance that other people listening to the podcast, somebody among those other people, particularly if it's a popular podcast, may recognize her voice, recognize her story and then it won't be – at least in that particular listener's head, an anonymous story and it won't be therefore a secret or a secret that she's keeping from you anymore even if you are i hope respecting your privacy not blabbing about this to other friends you may have in common who haven't listened to this particular podcast you know when it comes to things that people know it's hard to not know what you do know and maybe this belongs in that file you know it's difficult to pretend not to know something that you do know you stumble over evidence that somebody's cheating on you by snooping it's hard to pretend that you don't know that when you hear Somebody, your oldest friend or one of your oldest friends sharing something traumatic on a podcast that they suffered that you weren't aware of, it's difficult to go on pretending not to know this thing about them that you now know, particularly if you didn't violate their privacy really in any way. You listen to a podcast. They shared this with the podcast to be broadcast and that's how you discovered it. (sighs) What would I do if I were you? I think I would err on the side of reaching out to her, maybe reach out to her, reestablish contact, catch up with each other and not bring this up. And then if you continue to talk with each other, if she's happy to have you back in her life, if you guys reestablish your connection and your, your friendship is revived, maybe six or seven phone calls or socially distanced visits later, she will have brought it up. If not, then perhaps you could bring it up. It might offend her. It might upset her. But if she needs support, if she needs supportive friends in her life. Now, if this is something that she is beginning to process in a very public way now. And she needs support and she very well might. I think erring on the side of tiptoeing up to offering her that support is the right thing to do. Reach out to her first without bringing this up right away. And get a sense for how she's feeling, how she feels about you, and what she might need from you as a friend in the future.
6: Hey, Dan. A big fan here. Thank you so much for your advice over the years. And, you know, you've truly changed how I view uh, monogamy and communication in relationships. So I hope you can help me. Two weeks ago, my partner and I broke up. I'm 33 and he's 28. I know 33 isn't that old, but I'm old enough and I've dated enough to know that this was really special. I really love him. He's my friend and my partner, and we just have such a wonderful time together. He broke up with me because he felt we were going different places in our lives, mostly that I absolutely do not want to have children, and he does. And he felt that in the end we wouldn't end up together and it was reckless to kind of march down this path of togetherness knowing that it would have to end and that we might end up getting more hurt. We had talked about future plans together, specifically uh, we rock climbed together outdoors a lot and we had both wanted to take some time off together when this pandemic was over to go climbing. We just had so many things that we wanted to do. However, over the last couple weeks since we broke up, we've been talking and spending time together and, um, yeah, we can't really seem to let each other go. At this point, since I don't want kids, I'm pretty happy to kind of coast along and enjoy spending time with him. He really loves me and was upset when we broke up. We both want to see if there's any way we can stay in each other's lives. I guess I need to know if there is another way to define a relationship. We're talking in the next couple of weeks about what we can do moving forward and I just need an understanding of what there could be. If um, dating with an expiration date is a stupid idea, friends with benefits seems like a weird label. We want to stay together and be intimate and spend time together even though we both know it will ultimately end. Dan, do you think this is a bad idea? How else can we define a relationship that isn't you know, monogamy, polyamory, friends with benefits, in that we were in love and we are in love and we're partners, but there is an end date.
2: Usually when somebody's call opens with a long string of compliments for me, we cut it because I am Catholic and uncomfortable with compliments, but we left them in, your call, because you opened by saying you've learned so much listening to this show. You've learned so much listening to me, also listening to my callers and their comments and their questions, and yet you're facing really a manufactured crisis in this relationship because he wants kids and you do not. And somehow that in both your heads means you can't possibly be together But I think if you'd been listening closely to the show, you would have heard by this point that there are so many different ways for people these days to create families and it would be possible for him to have children with another woman, to have another relationship, to have a parenting relationship with another woman, to be the known donor and – dad, involved dad in the lives of a lesbian couple that wanted to have children and that you could play a role in those children's lives without having to be a full-time or custodial parent or even a particularly involved adult if you didn't wish to be. Or he could have kids on his own, live with them separately. You could maintain your own – there's lots of different ways that you could have what you want or not have what you don't want and he could have what he wants and you could still be together. And I don't think you have to put an expiration date on this relationship and obviously neither of you wants to end it at this point. So don't end it and who knows? You know, early in a relationship, something that feels like a deal breaker, you know, a faith you want to raise your kids in or whether you want to have kids or not or what part of the country you want to live in or whether the relationship is going to be opened or closed. People can not – it's not quite compromise on those things. I don't want to say compromise on those things. People can change. People can realize later on that they want something – different or that they want you and going without kids or anal or monogamy or polyamory or whatever it might be is the price of admission they're willing to pay to be in the relationship. So I think you two should continue to see each other and for you two to look around your community and see if you can't find examples of other people, of other people who are in love and still together who found different ways to create family for themselves, perhaps ways that have allowed one person to parent and the other person to – not parent, and still stay together. And you rule out polyamory, all right, doesn't have to be poly, doesn't mean he has to have a relationship with someone else. Again, he could be the known donor to a single lesbian or to a lesbian couple that wants an involved father figure or father, biological father and dad in the lives of their children and those couples are definitely out there and he would get to have his parenting thing and still get to go rock climbing with you. So keep seeing each other, keep climbing rocks, keep communicating, keep talking, keep exploring your options, expose yourselves to other families that have been created in other ways than just the mom and dad at home in the suburbs kind of idea of family we all have stuck in our heads and see what might be possible for you two and allow this relationship to continue to grow. And it may be that the conflict is resolved in the end because for other reasons unrelated to parenting, you part ways in a a few years and you'll be able to look back on this as a good short-term relationship and not the relationship that you needed to be in for the rest of your life or that he wanted to be in for the rest of his life. But still, for this time in your life, it was good. And those sorts of relationships, relationships that are good for us right now, are valid. They have worth. A relationship does not have to end in a funeral home or a maternity ward to have been worthwhile and worth your time. Right now, he's worth your time. Right now, you're worth his time. Only time will tell if you two are going to find a new way to form a family or if you're going to part ways, end the romantic relationship, and stay in each other's lives as loving and supportive friends everything has been pretty exhausting lately. The pandemic is exhausting. The news is exhausting. The election somehow continues to be exhausting. So we thought it might be a relief if we could all contemplate for just a moment, the end of everything. Theoretical astrophysicist Katie Mack is, well, she's a theoretical astrophysicist. She's also the author of The End of Everything. Hey, Katie, thank you so much for agreeing to demean yourself by coming on my podcast.
7: (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. I, I, I love the show.
2: Uh, well, thanks. It's very kind of you to say. I, I'm a sex advice columnist and podcaster. It's pretty obvious from my title, What I Do. You're mm-hmm. a theoretical astrophysicist, and I believe the yeah. first one we've ever had on this show. We've had comedians and dominatrixes <laughs> and episcopal bishops, never a theoretical astrophysicist. What does a theoretical astrophysicist do besides collect syllables?
7: Right. Um, well, so astrophysics is just the study of the universe, things in space, you know, stars and planets and galaxies and things like that. And so as a theoretical astrophysicist, I study those things from a theoretical perspective. So I don't do experiments. I don't use telescopes. Um, I'm trying to understand the universe based on, you know, theoretical models and uh, inferences from what we know about the cosmos already. And the area I work in is called cosmology, which is Really the study of the universe as a whole, the evolution of the cosmos, the beginning and the end, um, and all of the really big questions. So how does it end?
2: And when does it end? (laughs) I think the most shocking thing uh, that I found in your book when I read your book, the thing that alarmed me most, is uh, the end isn't some perhaps point in the distant future. The end is perhaps imminent.
7: Well, yeah, it depends. There are a few different possibilities for how the end of the universe could come about. And for the most part, we're talking many, many, many trillions and trillions of years in the future. So we're mostly talking about the very, very distant future. Um, you know, you have to add exponents to exponents to get to the, the numbers we're, we're discussing. But there are some possibilities that could happen sooner um, just because there's there are weird things that could occur in the universe, and some of them are not strictly predictable. So one of the ones I talk about in the book is called vacuum decay, which is a possibility where there's sort of a, uh, an instability built into the universe. And there, there's this possibility that a quantum event could happen at one point in the universe and create a bubble of a different kind of space. That expands through the universe and destroys everything. And based on our current understanding, we think that that probably would not happen for trillions and trillions and trillions of years. But because it's this very unpredictable event, we can't say with a hundred percent certainty that it couldn't happen sooner. So, you know, it's it's one of these things. It's it's kind of interesting to think about. It's not something anybody should worry about. It's. You know, it's still very theoretical at this point, but yeah, there are there are some possibilities where something could happen in the universe. It could change suddenly, you know, on a shorter time scale,
2: and could end now while we're talking, while you and I are on the phone. In
7: principle, in, in principle, but you know, on the on the hierarchy of things to worry about in the world, this is this would not uh, come anywhere close to the top of my list. So
2: uh, for the scientifically challenged out there, and I myself am among them, uh, I think it would be helpful for you to explain quickly the difference between a solar system, a galaxy, and a universe, because people often confuse those three things.
7: Yeah, yeah. So a solar system is a collection of a star and its planets. So our solar system has the sun and, and all the planets a galaxy is a collection of stars. And usually when you see an image of a galaxy, it's sort of a disc with spiral arms. Uh, we live in our galaxy called the Milky Way. So when you go to a really dark place and you look out a- at night and you see this sort of white smudge across the sky, that's the Milky Way. And that's because we are we are in this disc-shaped galaxy. And so if you're inside the disc and you look in a particular direction, you're seeing you know th- along the disc. And that's that's that uh, stretch of stars across the sky, the Milky Way. Um, and then you know there are billions of galaxies in the universe. we think maybe even a trillion galaxies in the observable universe, which is the sort of uh, the region of space that we can see with telescopes that we can observe with our instruments and uh, and so the the universe itself extends probably you know much much farther than we can perceive. Uh, but it has it has all these different kinds of galaxies in it, and there are, we can see out to something like something like forty six billion light years away. We can see uh, galaxies out there, and there are lots of different kinds. And then they're not all spirals; some of them are sort of blobs of stars, and uh, we can see them collide sometimes and interact. And there's uh, there's a lot of sort of diversity in terms of how how things come together in the universe. So
2: there's a point coming in, in millions or billions of years, I can't remember which, where the sun expands and boils the ocean, swallows the earth, Yes, uh, and our solar system ends. There's a point coming yep. where our galaxy is going to collide with the, uh, with the Andromeda galaxy, and yep. we probably wouldn't survive that if we were still here on Earth and the sun hadn't already swallowed us up. But the universe ending mm-hmm. is a different beast.
7: Yeah, yeah. So – so we could potentially survive the Andromeda Galaxy collision if the sun had you know, if the sun hadn't destroyed us. Uh it depends kind of on on what exactly goes on in that. But yeah, the universe itself ending, that's it, right? And the 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 most likely way for the universe to end is something called the heat death. And that's where basically the the universe keeps expanding and expanding and it just gets really cold and dark. So right now we know that the universe is expanding. What we see is that galaxies are getting farther apart from each other. So we're, uh, we're in the Milky Way galaxy. We we see distant galaxies all around the sky. And for the most part, those distant galaxies are moving away from us. They're also moving away from each other. There's just more empty space happening all the time in the universe. And uh, it turns out that that process is speeding up. So, The distances between galaxies are getting larger, faster and faster all the time. The expansion of the universe is accelerating. And that means that over time, distant galaxies are going to be so far away from us that we won't be able to see them anymore. Um, Every galaxy or small group of galaxies will get more and more isolated. And that means that there won't be interactions between galaxies anymore. And since interactions between galaxies is one of the ways that you get new stars forming, fewer stars are forming and the stars that we have in our galaxy are going to burn out. And so over time, you know, we won't be able to see other galaxies, the stars in our galaxy are going to burn out. Particles are going to decay. The universe is just going to get colder and darker and emptier until eventually there's basically nothing left. And and that's called the heat death. And the reason it's called heat death, the heat there refers to, to it's a sort of technical physics term for disordered energy. So basically what happens is there's nothing left in the universe except this kind of waste heat from all of the stuff that ever happened in the universe. Just this little bit of disordered leftover energy from everything that decayed. And then there's, there's just nothing else can happen. And that's, that's the heat death. So that's the most likely scenario. It takes a really long time to, to, you know, uh, complete. Um, and it's a kind of a sad story. <laughs> so
2: It is. I mean, the only silver lining is it's a, it's a, it's a point, I guess not in time because it's not about time, but it's a point when there will be no more Trumps, but what other upside true. is there? What was the point of, of existence <laughs> and, and life if this is how it ends?
7: Well, yeah. I mean, this is the big philosophical question, right? Like what, what do you do with the idea that, at some point, the universe will end, and nothing will have mattered. Um, I mean, if you think about it that way, if you think of the idea that at some point everything about our existence will be wiped away by the, you know, the sort of dis- disillusion of the cosmos. What does that mean for how we live our lives, for purpose in this universe? And that's something that over the course of writing this book, I've I've really sort of struggled with. Like, what does it mean? for us if uh, if at some point we won't have mattered and i think what i've what i've settled on is that we we kind of need to find ways to have meaning in our lives now and to to not seek some external justification some you know final wrap up where everybody'll come around in a circle and say okay this is the point of everything you know it's it's you it, really have to think about what we want to get out of life now and how we want to live now and not uh, not rely on something external. I-, I wanted
2: you to come on and give some sex and relationship advice because I thought that would be <laughs> hilarious considering your mm-hmm. perspective. You know, that's mostly what I do is try- help people try to put things into perspective. And I think you have a longer range perspective than I do. <laughs> and I just want to throw some questions at you and-, and see how you do. But before we get to the questions, I want to ask you uh everywhere i go in liberal seattle i see those giant meteor 2020 just ended already bumper right. stickers uh, yeah. and they play a certain way for me i imagine they play differently for you
7: <laughs> it's interesting there there is this kind of nihilistic uh vibe in the world today and and i get it you know i i see the news as well you know i know what's going on in the world i understand uh why people are sort of craving that, you know, just, just destroy everything, you know, blow it all up. Um, You know, I, I try to, I try to avoid that, that kind of, uh, that kind of feeling myself, but, but I understand it. And I think maybe that's one of the things that really drew me to writing this book is being able to contemplate, you know, that ultimate destruction in a way that's it's not the kind of danger and destruction that is immediately threatening to myself and my loved ones. And so I don't have to worry about, uh, about that. It's, you can, you can have this sort of, this sort of vicarious, uh, enjoyment of, you know, things blowing up and being destroyed and, you know, giant bubble of death moving through the universe or whatever, and, and, uh, not have to take it too personally. So I, I, do enjoy that aspect of, of what I study. All right,
2: uh, let's take some calls together. How do you feel about giving a little sex advice?
7: I'm I'm happy to. This this sounds fun.
8: <laughs> hey Dan, straight male in my forties from the Midwest and Magnum subscriber. My question is from a mental and emotional framework. How should one approach having penetrative sex for the first time, and how should one handle the unexpected breakup after this first experience? I was 22, and this woman I met was beautiful and amazing. There was a strong mutual physical attraction, and within a week. I was a virgin no more. I stayed on cloud nine for almost four months. The sex and living in the moment was the easy part. Things were great until six weeks later, something changed. And all my relationships I've had, except my current one to this point, this change or flipping of the switch, I call it, would eventually occur. And listening to your show, I think all my relationships ended when the NRE ended. Anyway, I had this fairy tale happily ever after mentality, just like it happens in the movies. When this relationship ended, the sadness and abandonment I felt was overpowering. I told her I was ready to tell her that I loved her. She responded, care about you maybe, but I will never love you. This was crushing to hear. The sex did something to me. It was like this emotional weapon I could not control. I felt betrayed and that she ruined my dreams. But as I have matured and seen how relationships work, a loving relationship has to be your partner's dream as well. At the outset, nothing was communicated. We just went with our feelings and kept seeing each other. We rode the wave as far as it would take us. Inevitably, I guess that is how breakups occur and feelings get hurt. Let's just say we were not on the same wavelength. This all or nothing emotional mentality killed me. One month she could not get enough of me, the next month she wanted me out of her life forever. I felt a special bond. I have learned the hard way once the magic is gone and she leaves. You can't argue your way to get it back or say it's unfair emotionally when it comes down to it should sex be approached like having a good or bad meal for instance say you are having a hamburger you can say it's good or i've had better but you don't long for it or regret its loss after it's been eaten should the motto of any relationship be to expect the unexpected and take a breakup with grace and walk away speechless when it's all said and done I feel I did not handle my ex's sudden switch very well. I definitely do not feel I was left better than I was initially found either. I had to learn the hard way. What would you have told the 22-year-old me? And would you tell future 22-year-old me's in this situation?
2: So what would we tell his 22-year-old self besides get the fuck over it? This is what happens.
7: <laughs> I th- I, th- I thought this this call was very interesting because – it sounded like what he, the lesson he was taking from it was, you know, sometimes things go badly. You have to just uh, walk away. I, th- the, I The lesson I thought he should be taking from this is you have to talk about your feelings at some point. You know, you, you, if you're in an intimate relationship with someone, it, communication is really important. And it's especially important when you are in that vulnerable space, when you're trying something new, when you're... You know, opening up to someone for the first time, like you have to talk about how you feel. It sounded like they were, you know, they were just having this great time and just, you know, going through it. And that on totally different pages and never addressed that until he had his heart totally broken.
2: But but addressing it and getting on the, you know, isn't going to necessarily get you on the same page. He could have opened up to her about how attached he was feeling uh, and how into her she was and she still could have decided six weeks in that she was done and that she wasn't yeah. as interested in him for the long term as he apparently was interested in her.
7: Yeah, and that's, you know, and that's something that that can happen when you talk about your feelings. That that is a, another kind of vulnerability that can occur, but I think that it's also that that's fair. People have different feelings about things and different expectations, and if you if you don't ask and, you know, you just assume that because you're really into it and you're really happy, the other person's going to be really into it and happy and and expecting something for the future, that's a recipe for for that Shock coming, you know, you can't necessarily talk through and make everything okay. You know, um, it's, it's very tempting if you're the sort of person who thinks too much about things to think, well, it's just a matter of everybody has to have all the information and then we'll all agree and it'll be great. Right. And then this is, this is a trap I fall into. Like, oh, the problem is just that we haven't explained it all enough. Like, no, that's not always going to work. But, uh, but you do have to start from that place of, having that discussion of, of being clear about what you want and what the other person wants um, and not Absolutely just assuming, yeah. And, and not just assuming that because you are swimming in your feelings, uh, the other person is going to be in the exact same place.
2: I would also encourage him to perhaps uh, encourage everyone to see something that lasts six weeks and is great for six weeks and then ends as not a failure as yeah. something that could have been meaningful and, and valuable. And you don't necessarily have to extend its life indefinitely and keep the universe of that relationship going eternally for it to have been good. And, you know, if you're to right. say anything to somebody who's 22 years old or just starting out on their sex life, your heart is going to get stomped on. You are going to get dumped. You are also going to dump mm-hmm. people. And that's just part of it. And if you can't handle that, well, then maybe – You're not cut out for human relationships, which almost invariably, like Versailles, almost invariably end. You know, most of the relationships we're in end. And then maybe we're in one that doesn't end, but eventually they die or you die and it still ends. Yeah. You know, you may be lucky enough, in theory lucky enough. Some people are in miserable relationships that go on and on and on. You may be lucky enough to die while partnered, but it's still going to end.
7: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it is important to find a way to enjoy what's happening, find a way to let yourself have enjoyment that is, that is just contingent on what is happening at that time and not, not, you know, based on how you think the future is going to go. And I know that's, that can be hard, but I think it's a really, really helpful perspective to have.
9: Hey, Dan, I'm a cis straight female in my mid 20s from the south. I got out of a relationship where I felt sexually repressed about a year ago and decided to really explore my sexuality. But then COVID happened and my pussy went into quarantine. I've decided to get back out there with the main goal of finding one person who would begin to join me in exploring what I enjoy in the bedroom. I don't think I'm ready to emotionally commit to one person. So I figured a casual relationship would be the best way to go. So naturally, I got on these dating apps. (laughs) I met a guy on one and we sexed it a few times, um, which have been incredibly stimulating and fun, but we've never really talked on the phone or made plans to meet up in person. The communication is little to nonexistent except for when we sex, so maybe once a week and we just text and literally just sexing. I think I could really have a lot of fun with the guy and from his sex, he seems like he'd be fantastic in bed. My questions are as follows. First, how do I go about asking him for a meetup? I mean, I mean, he seems stupid since he hasn't asked and I should have seen he isn't interested in meeting up and he's fine with just texting. Second, if we did decide to meet up, how do I go about laying what my rules are regarding COVID precautions and what our arrangement would be? I'd like to have a casual partner, especially considering we're going into another surge and it'd be nice to have a fuck buddy who's on the same page regarding COVID precautions and that I can also have a good time with. My health and safety as well as those I have to interact with for work is extremely important to me. I don't want to jeopardize my life or anybody else's life by transmitting COVID to them. Lastly, how and when do I go about communicating what I'd expect from the arrangement? I'm not planning to marry him or pursue anything more than a sexual or casual relationship. At the same time, I don't
7: want someone who will move and would be cold. I mean, this is hard, right? Because... You know, it's always awkward to talk about expectations and safety. And, uh, you know, if you're meeting someone for the first time, trying to figure out where their boundaries are, where your boundaries are. And right now it's especially hard because uh, we're in a pandemic and you don't know what kind of precautions other people are taking. And and if it's somebody you've never met before, you don't know uh, what their risk factors are, what their behaviors are. Oh, the stakes are are a little bit higher on everything, and I mean, I think all I all I would say is it's another situation where communication is really important. Where being having an open and honest and frank conversation about ri- the kind of risks you're willing to take, the the risks you're taking in other parts of your life, what kind of stakes you you imagine you have, you know, I think that's that's really important here.
2: I think what's interesting here is the the tension, the contradiction where she wants to keep things casual, but she also wants to dictate terms to this person that she's never even spoken to on the phone, only swapped messages with about how they live their life. And that's not something that you can do. You can't insist that it's casual and then demand to know from that person where they go, who they spend time with, what safety precautions they're taking. And even if they tell you what you want to hear – The odds that you may be lied to by someone who just wants to get in your pants, especially if they think you're being a little controlling or crazy, are high, pretty high. And so it seems to me an unrealistic expectation. First, that this person is interested in something more when you can't even get them on the phone and they only reach out to you every once in a while to swap some sex messages. sounds like they just might want what you're giving them right now, which is a casual sex messaging relationship. But then if you did reach them and then you laid out everything that you're going to demand of them for a casual sexual relationship, the odds that they would sign up for that seem low.
7: Yeah. 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 I think it's, I think it's a really, a really hard, uh, balance to, to, uh, to achieve there. And, And the other thing I would say is, you know, ideally everybody would be as completely safe as possible and, uh, you know, we would all be taking all the precautions we can. I know that people are taking some risks here and there and that is, you know, something that people make decisions about based on what their needs are and, and what their situations are. One thing I would say, though, is that if you are taking certain sort of pandemic risks in one part of your life that's a reason to take fewer risks in another right so if you know that you're doing something that's a little bit on the riskier side in one area of your life you can really really lock down the rest to try to balance that out so you know assume that there's a higher chance you're going to get infected in this part of your life, be a lot more careful with people you interact with in other parts of your life. Realize that you have that higher risk and and try and and balance that out. Don't just say, well, I'm taking a risk here. I might as well take a risk everywhere. That's the wrong approach.
10: Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth, 38-year-old cis female calling from the southeast. I was just listening to an episode where Dan talks about vibrators, and it got me imagining what someone from the distant past might think about human relationships today and sex toys and the fact that we talk about it so openly, which then got me wondering what the future might hold for us and what kinds of brain manipulation or hormone manipulation toys we may have in the distant future. And I thought, who better to give me a prediction on human relationships and sex and the technology involved in that. Uh, than Dan. So I wanted to call in and ask for your predictions on the future of sex and relationships and toys for people.
2: Okay, Katie. So it's millions or billions of years from now (laughs) and humans have, you know, managed to travel through all of the universe and there are humans on some distant planet watching Mm -hmm. uh, the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxies collide uh, and after they're done watching, they decide to fuck. What do you think that they're doing? <laughs> what kind of fucking are they doing on that distant planet in the distant future?
7: That's an excellent question that I I, I do not know the answer to. I I think it'll be interesting to see if we really do uh, go go the way of the sort of singularity, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, we all become robots or or software entities. Uh, in order to travel the stars, I think that's interesting to think about whether or not that will happen. I think that in the near future, what my uh, wait, my let's expect- let's pause yeah. right
2: there for a second before we blow past that. What you've just imagined is a future where we don't have physical bodies or forms.
7: I mean, that's that's something that that people talk about a lot as a way to, you know, explore the universe more efficiently, right? Because moving mass is hard, right? You have this, uh, speed of light problem. Um, it takes a lot of energy to, uh, accelerate massive things, uh, for, you know, across spatial distances, like just, just getting to our nearest star based on current technology, the, you know, the, the, um, uh, Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the sun, uh, it would take probably tens of thousands of years. So that's, you know that's it's a hard thing to move massive things around the universe and so one of the ways people have talked about getting around that is to translate our intelligences to software and then just beam uh, the software around uh, through radio messages uh, basically so it's it's possible if that ever becomes a thing that humans can do which i do not know it's possible that there there could be a future intelligence a future intelligent situation that is largely based in software or or machines and then i guess you can just decide what your subjective experience of sensation is in within that software i don't know i don't know how how that will ever uh, play out but that could be very interesting
2: It's funny that the caller says that she was looking at vibrators and thinking someone from the distant past wouldn't understand what that was. We found Neolithic what have to be dildos. We don't know exactly what these objects were being used for, but they look like sex toys. So I don't think sex toys to someone from the distant past would be that uh, strange or, or something they couldn't possibly understand some of our modern uh, versions of sex toys and the merge in, and the, the, you know the merging of technology in sex toys. I think that would befuddle people even from 30 years ago. I'm a little fascinated about looking at research current research showing that people are having less sex um, with other humans, with each other. Uh, mm. less physical sex, but having a lot of online sex. You know, the previous caller is having a sexting relationship. Mm. That wasn't possible 20 years ago with somebody that she's never met. If you wanted, you know, to interact with somebody, uh, you know, and deploy the sex, the biggest sex organs we have, the ones between our ears to get off, you had to be in that person's presence, no longer a requirement. Um, and I, that's what I think is so interesting right now. And maybe where we're going in the short term future is so many people are having their first yeah. formative sexual experiences interacting with devices, interacting with technology, and that is going to lead to the eroticization yeah. of technology to, to some extent and for it to become the focus of some people's sexuality and sexual expression. And that alarms some people, but I'm kind of not morbidly fascinated, just straight-up fascinated by
1: that.
7: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. And In, um, A few years ago, I met a, a researcher named Kate Devlin who – uh, is a computer scientist slash archaeologist who studies sort of people's relationships with technology around sex, uh, among other things. She wrote a book called "Turned On: Science, Sex, and Robots," and she she talks about how you know this this whole industry is is getting more into helping people make connections across distances. You know, um, apps that that allow people to uh, have you know interactive sort of interactive sex toys and things like that, that can work across distances. And, and a lot of the, you know, there's not a lot of sort of work in terms of actual sex robots. I mean, that's, that's a thing that people are working on. It's, it's kind of niche, but there, there's a much bigger market for like artificial companionship. You know, uh, she talks about how people, uh, people talk to their, um, you know, automated assistants, you know, Siri and, and, um, you know Alexa and all this stuff. Uh, people talk dirty to those devices, and there's there's a kind of market for artificial relationships uh, because that's a kind of interaction that people are kind of getting used to, and uh, and people a lot of times just want that companionship.
2: They also can't be judged by Siri or Alexa, and that's very disinhibiting for many right. people. Right. That, that technology yeah. isn't going to judge yeah. you or shame you or give you a funny look that throws you.
7: Yeah. Yeah. And it's always there for you, you know, and, uh, and for, for some people that kind of uh, artificial companionship can be very um, helpful. Uh, And I don't know. I think it's, I think it's interesting how, how things are going that way, how much we are interacting with technology both to connect with each other and sort of just as a way of connecting to something else beyond ourselves.
2: Are you alarmed by the coming of the sex robots? Are you one of those people? I'm not alarmed by the coming of the sex robots. I'm kind of (laughs) pro the coming of the sex robots.
7: I mean, I, yeah, I I am, I'm not terribly concerned with any of it really. I think there are sort of areas where things can be concerning. You know, um, there's a lot of discussion about how much people can occasionally be sort of abusive to things like Siri and Alexa. And, and there's an aspect of like, well, it's this female voice. And what is that saying about how people are, are thinking about uh, their, you know, assistant who, who cannot talk back to them and sounds like a woman and, and they can, you know, yell at this this entity and treat it like a person, but in a mean way, I, you know, th- there are sort of areas of concern in, in certain spaces, but I think in general, the idea of people being intimate with technology is, is not something I worry about at all.
2: Katie Mack, The End of Everything is her latest book. She's a theoretical astrophysicist. Follow her on Twitter at Astro Katie. Uh, Twitter is where I first encountered you, and I so enjoy following you on Twitter. You are one of the people that keep me on that hell platform.
7: (laughs) Thanks so much. And thanks so much for having me on the show. This was really fun.
2: It was a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm a big fan of the show. Quick question. What is the difference between making love and fucking slowly?
2: Different people make love in different ways. Some people make love fast and furious, Tokyo Drift. Some people make love slow and languid. It really is very subjective. What I might think of as lovemaking, you might think of as trauma-inducing. It really depends. So you can't just – if somebody says to you, I want to make love to you, I want you to make love to me, assume that what they want is slow and sensuous and languid and that particular kind – Of passion. You need more info. You need more data than just I would like to be made love to. Often when people do say we made love, it is about a certain kind of sensuousness or the the taking of time, the, the going of slow. But that's not always the case. Some people find slow lovemaking to be tedious. Other people find slow lovemaking to be exactly what they want. Ask your partner what lovemaking means to them and then make love to your partner the way they would like love made to them. And be clear with your partner about what making love feels like or looks like to you, what it means for you. And find somebody who's roughly on the same page. But yeah, slow, sensuous, passionate, lots of kisses, candles, rose petals on the bed. Some people think that's making love. Other people think hanging from their wrists in a sex dungeon and being flogged before being brutally fucked hard and fast is making love. It's personal. It's subjective. And the person whose opinion really matters here, whose preference really matters here is the person you're sleeping with, not your sex advice podcast host. All right. Before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets at chase the danger tweets, listening to a call on the hashtag Savage Lovecast from a woman whose boyfriend has no kinks, and thinking about the boyfriend I had that was completely vanilla, right up until the point I discovered his very well hidden giant ass fetish two and a half years in. That was a conversation. I think I speak for everyone, Chase the Dragon. When I say we want to hear more about that conversation, please call in and share. At Mick Liv Sauce tweets, hey at fake dance savage, P-I-T, penis and tits. Just wanted to double check hashtag Savage Lovecast. PIV, penis and vagina, as everyone knows. PIB, penis and butt. PIT, penis in throat. I could have gone with PIM, penis and mouth, but I like my rhymes. PIV, PIB, PIT. Oh, and of course, PID, penis and drawer for all the peggers out there. And finally, David Tranto tweets, woke up thinking about the bi woman and the monogamous marriage from last week's Savage Lovecast. I have so many thoughts. Beyond Dan Savage's that won't fit in a response call. Do I need to write a pamphlet called Buy Monogamy to get enough clout to come on the show as a guest? David, whose Twitter handle is at the underscore Wincaster, posted a long thread after that tweet. Not quite pamphlet length, but it's smart and funny and worth looking up. Thanks to everyone who posts about the show to social media. It really helps us pull in new listeners. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls.
3: Hi, Dan. I had to leave a comment for the caller that called about complaining about American flag, asking if there's anything for us as Americans to be proud of anymore and things like that. Please, please, caller, talk to an immigrant. You have no idea how lucky we are to live here. Living in America in 2020, even with our problems right now, political division and all these other issues, is doing life in easy mode compared to most of the world. Seriously, stop shitting on this country that provided literally refuge for for people like me.
11: This is a response to the flag question, and I generally agree with Dan's perspective that the American flag doesn't belong to the right. But I wanted to sort of add perspective as a cis Black man in the Midwest. I definitely pay attention to the way that people use the American flag, especially if it's, for lack of a better term, obnoxious, uh, kind of like a giant flag in the living room or flying in the patio without a pride flag in addition to it. Anything like that I pay attention to because... At least here in the Midwest, I noticed that it's sort of a Confederate light flag because hardly anyone in the Midwest accepts the Confederate flag. But if maybe you still don't support that Black Black Lives Matter or are harmful towards trans people, there, there's a correlation, at least in the Midwest, I think, to those things. And so I just want to say that to validate the caller uh, and say that. She's not the only one who kind of picks up on how people use the American flag. And at least from a racial trauma, hyper-awareness point of view, I definitely pay attention to that. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the caller from episode 736, who's worried because her boyfriend doesn't have any kinks. He sounds like me. We exist. I am vanilla and I always have been. Listening to the Lovecast, it's easy to forget that the incredible sexual diversity of humanity includes vanilla people too. In this sense, your boyfriend is no more weird than the guy who wants to dress up as a baby or the woman who wants to be pooped on. So, as Dan mentioned, as long as your boyfriend is GGG and a partner willing to help you explore, there's no reason not to take a at his word.
2: And we're going to leave it there. Got a question you need answered or a comment about this week's show? Give us a call at 206-302-2064 to record your question or your comment or email us your question or comment at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This Saturday, December 12th, Nancy and I are doing another Savage Love live stream where I'll be answering as many of your questions as I can live from my Christmassy living room. Last time we did this, it was a total blast. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events. Get your tickets now. And you have one more chance to catch Hump's Greatest Hits, Volume 2, this Thursday, December 10th. Head to humpfilmfest.com for this great compilation of our favorite dirty movies from the last 15 years of Hump. And you now have until January 8th to make and submit a dirty movie for Hump 2021. Hump films, they can be softcore, hardcore, live action, animation, anything and everything, anyone and everyone goes at Hump. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to learn more and if you're looking for the perfect gift for someone on your list consider getting them a magnum subscription to the savage Lovecast. the subscription gives your loved ones access to every single magnum episode magnum subscribers they get more rants more guests more questions more answers but magnum subscribers don't hear any ads magnums are ad free go to savagelovecast.com and buy someone a magnum subscription today Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Katie Mac on Twitter at AstroKatie. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, and the tech savvy At Rescue and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for joining.